The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring you this closure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. First, I want to welcome and thank our new Veritas members. You are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's episode has to be one of the most fascinating shows I have ever done. The discovery of life on Mars, teleportation, time travel, and more. Andrew Bashago is our special guest and will be with us shortly. And if you're listening to this show prior to Friday, October the 9th at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, head on over to our website, VeritasShow.com, and click on the chat link where we are having a live voice chat with Andrew Bashago. Here's your opportunity to ask questions and participate in a two-hour live show with Andy and I. Don't let this opportunity slip by. Friday, October the 9th, from 9 to 11 p.m. Pacific Time. We have a terrific lineup of guests coming. Next week, Dr. Leonard Horowitz and investigative journalist Sherry Kane behind the swine flu pandemic. Although this show is a two-hour show, Tonight's interview is three hours long, which seems to be the case with a lot of our past shows. 
As usual, if the topic warrants it and the guest agrees, we go into overtime. So to listen to the entire show, head on over to our website and click on subscribe and you will be able to download this and all our past shows and take them with you wherever you go. Have access to the Manticore Forum and our member guest chats. All of this for $15.95 for a three-month period, which equals to $5.32 per month or $0.37 per show when you add all our 43 shows to date. Also, thanks to your membership, I was able to purchase a new video camera that I will be taking with me to the upcoming C-SETI event in Rio Rico, Arizona. Countdown to Transformation, a special conference under the stars to celebrate and make ET contact, October 24th through the 26th, with Dr. Stephen Greer, Colin Andrews, Dr. Ted Loader, and other great speakers. I will be filming at night, and we share the footage with you, along with my first video interview with Colin Andrews. And who knows, this could be my very first UFO sighting. For more information, go to our website and click on the contact countdown link. I hope to meet some of you there. If you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact link of our website, or simply write to mel, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. I really enjoy your feedback, comments, and questions. And here's a reminder to those of you who are 100% qualified to transcribe shows. Visit the free subscription link of our website. You will receive a three-month subscription, which will give you access to all our past shows, all the benefits. Also, if you have any ideas that could turn into value for Veritas, feel free to submit them as well, and we'll evaluate them individually. And now, for the most relevant news of the day. Just imagine, a spaceship plunges out of the night sky, hits the ground and explodes. A plume of debris billows back into the heavens, leading your eye to a second ship in hot pursuit. Four minutes later, that one hits the ground too. It's raining spaceships. Put on your hard hat and get ready for action, because on Friday, October the 9th, what you just imagine is really going to happen, and you can have a front row seat. The impact site is Crater Cabius, near the moon's south pole. NASA is guiding the Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite, LACROSS for short, on its center booster rocket into the crater's floor for a spectacular double impact designed to unearth signs of lunar water. The actual impacts commands at 4.30 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. The central rocket will strike first, transforming 2,200 kilograms of mass and 10 billion joules of kinetic energy into a blinding flash of heat and light. Researchers expect the impact to throw up a plume of debris as high as 10 kilometers. Close behind, the LaCrosse mothership will photograph the collision for NASA TV and then fly right through the debris plume. Onboard spectrometers will analyze the sunlit plume for signs of water, water fragment salts, clays, hydrated minerals, and assorted organic molecules. Quote, if there's water there, or anything else interesting, we'll find it. Unquote. Says Tony Colapretti of NASA Ames, the mission's principal investigator. Next, 
comes the mothership's own plunge. Four minutes after the center lands, the 700 kilograms lacrosse satellite will strike nearby, sending another smaller debris plume over the rim of Cabeus. The Hubble Space Telescope, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and hundreds of telescopes great and small on Earth will scrutinize the two plumes, looking for signs of water and the unexpected. The Pacific Ocean and western parts of North America are favored with darkness and a good view of the moon at the time of impact. Hawaii is the best place to be, with Pacific Coast states of the USA a close second. Any place west of the Mississippi River, however, is a potential observing site. Now, I know what you're thinking. This all sounds so nice. But if you're a taxpayer or a citizen of the world, aren't you concerned? 1. The Indian lunar mission Chandrayaan-1 already made that discovery. NASA, please pay attention. We already know there is water on the moon. Abort the mission. 2. The Obama administration has already made overtures to scrap future lunar missions while the recession continues. Why Bob? 3. It has already been proven that the moon is hollow and it rings like a bell. Do we even know the possible consequences of this bombing? 4. What if the moon is inhabited by an observing and more advanced civilization? Could this be the tripwire event that will cause the alien wars Cliff High mentioned during our last show? And 5. Will the bombing even take place or be allowed? I don't know the answers. You are either a Veritas member who is listening to this prior to the moon bombing or after. We'll discuss this during Friday's chat with Andrew Pachago. By then, we will know the outcome. And now, get ready to experience Project Pegasus by one of its members. This is probably one of the most important stories you will ever hear. The discovery of life on Mars, teleportation, time travel, and much more. According to our guest, what you are about to hear is not science fiction. Andrew Bashago is coming up next. If you want to believe, stop this audio now. If you want to know, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Bob Dean, and you've been listening to The Veritas Show. Andrew D. Bashago is an American trial lawyer, writer, 
an environmental scholar. Andy was one of the whiz kids who served from 1969 to 1972 in DARPA's Time Space Exploration Program, Project Pegasus. A past member of Mensa, the High IQ Society, he holds five degrees, including a bachelor's in history from the University of California, Los Angeles, and a master of philosophy from the University of Cambridge. While an undergraduate at UCLA, Andy became a journalist and a protege of editor Norman Cousins of the Saturday Review, who once compared him to Robert Hutchins and nominated him to be the editor of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. He was inspired by a meeting with architect Buckminster Fuller in 1981 to pursue a career in environmental policy. After their meeting, Fuller wrote, quote, Andrew Bashago's integrity augurs well for humanity's continuance in the universe, unquote. Andy founded the Mars Anomaly Research Society, Mars, in 2008, after discovering abundant evidence of life in a photograph of the red planet being back to Earth by NASA's Mars Exploration Rover Spirit. His discovery of life on Mars might be an epochal event in human history. His crusade to evaluate and prove his findings and bring them to public light has been called heroic. About his discovery, Andy stated, quote, NASA and JPL photograph PIA 10214 is going to spark a second Copernican revolution on our planet, and it was my cosmic privilege to discover that it contained evidence of life on Mars. Society will be transformed, I think, for the better, by the revelation of the fact that we are not alone in the universe, indeed, that we are not even alone in our own solar system. Unquote. And directly from Vancouver, Washington, our special guest, Andrew D. Bashago. Hello, Andrew, and welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? Good, Mel. Good to be with you today. And may I call you Andy? Sure, I, I prefer that. Please do. Well, let me just start by saying this. Earlier this year, I was listening to Alfred Weber's Exopolitics radio show, and I was listening to this show in particular, and I heard you for the first time. And I told this to Alfred uh, the moment I heard it, and when I brought him to the show, I told him that my jaw is still on the floor because I, I could not believe my conventional wisdom said this, this, is, this can be true. But having somebody like you with so many degrees and, and the eloquence in which you, you recount the, the, the facts, I had to have you on the show. So I'm so glad that you're here today. I've heard some of your presentations, and I hope that within the next two hours, we can relay and convey this information to the world because it is so important. So what I'd like to do is divide the show into two parts. First, we're going to talk about the hidden history of the discovery of life on Mars. And then on the second hour, we're going to get to the nitty gritty. But why don't I let you start just to introduce, introduce yourself first. Thank you, Mel. Um, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Um, I'm uh, a lawyer here in Washington State, and I, I grew up in, in New Jersey, having been born there in 1961. And um, in our earliest childhood, I was brought into classified defense-related research and development activities uh, under what was then ARPA, the uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency, which would become DARPA the Defense Advanced Research Projects, Projects Agency. That's the agency that brought us the Internet. Right. But in fact, 40 years ago, they were already developing technologies far more sophisticated than they've publicized. In fact, by 1967-68, uh, 
the U.S. government secretly under DARPA, and this is the significance really of, 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 of my, my story, of my account, had achieved what I'm calling quantum access. Now, quantum access spans everything from using very gifted psychics to see things at a distance in space in real time all the way to physical time travel of human beings to, to, to past and future events. And I was one of the, chi- the child participants in Project Pegasus, which was the project undertaken under the aegis of DARPA in the late 1960s and early 1970s in which quantum access was achieved. Essentially, what I'm sharing is an insider's account of the hidden history of the real Philadelphia experiment, the, the actual time-space exploration program under the Department of Defense for which the later uh, cover stories about time travel were scripted. And so um, uh, I was brought into those activities at a very young age, and my research recently has really followed two tracks. On the natural history track, I am studying photographs of NASA and the ESA, and I've essentially proven that Mars is an inhabited planet. In fact, back in 2008, um, I published a paper entitled The Discovery of Life on Mars, and I showed that. And I've published about 40, 40 or 50 research papers since then, short monographs establishing um, that finding. Now, it's related to my, my activities as a child in, in Project Pegasus because that may very well have formed the reason that I was brought into Pegasus as a child because we've now established seven data points in my childhood and young adulthood in which my future discovery of life on Mars, uh, I was apprised of that by the government as a result of it having prior knowledge of that discovery. And so I've been trying to relate those two research tracks, one in the realm of natural history, demonstrating based on photographic evidence that Mars is an inhabited planet, uh, which in itself is a significant development that I think is going to be very impacting in, in in the 21st century. But also I'm trying to relate that discovery to my experiences in Project Pegasus as one of America's early time-space explorers. I was the first American child to teleport, and it was in that context that my destiny as somebody principally associated with the discovery of life on Mars was revealed to me. So um, in the first hour, I thought we might explore the incidents in my childhood in which the later Mars finding were revealed to me, and, and this will give a kind of a view uh, a set of vignettes that were about how the people associated with Pegasus were dealing with information they knew uh, from the future. And they knew that information from, as I said, everything from using advanced psychics to um, they had developed devices that were modeling holograms of past and future events by 1970. And by 1971-72, they were sending people to the past and, and future via uh, teleportation devices. And um, I was involved in those those activities myself directly, um, and so that that is that track is sort of more from the realm of deep politics, where as a whistleblower, I'm revealing what Project Pegasus achieved. Because you know, in the 21st century, we're going to have to address the crisis of environment and development that we find ourselves in, and I think teleportation, um, you know, adopting teleportation globally, is going to be one of the key things that we're going to do to to uh, to save our planetary civilization. So, um, absolutely. Those are those are the two tracks that I find myself on right now. They're kind of converging right now. I'm releasing 
a lot of um, new findings about what's on Mars, but I've also decided to come forward and discuss what uh, my experiences in Project Pegasus because some remarkable things were achieved by the U.S. government, and now 40 years later, I think it's time that the people of the United States and indeed the people of the world learn what those developments were and how they've been used for the last four decades. Can I interject for one second, Andy? I, I hear, and I talk to a lot of guests every week, and we hear that disclosure is happening. It's not happening as the disclosure. Many people want a president or, or a major political figure to come out and say that we have been interacting with an extraterrestrial race for, for years, etc. But disclosure is happening. And what we're experiencing tonight, here tonight on the Veritas show, folks, is disclosure. Now, the question is, a lot of whistleblowers have been subverted or destroyed. I want to know, how is it that you're coming forward unscathed? Well, in fact, when I was investigating my, my um, experiences in Project Pegasus, um, I had a meeting in June of 2003. I can tell you where it was held. It was held at the parking lot at the Wolf Creek Pass Ski Lodge uh, near Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Uh, obviously, it was June there in Colorado, so nobody was skiing. Right. And it was in that location during my first fact-finding trip to New Mexico in regard to my childhood experiences in Project Pegasus that I met with a representative of the executive office of the president. This would be during the first Bush administration. And I was told the following. I was told, basically, the memories that I had of being involved in time travel research undertaken by DARPA were valid, that the project involved the research and development into time travel technologies, that I was in the program, I was known by the government as having been one of the child participants, and that these technologies remained sensitive, compartmentalized national security secrets, and therefore, that if I did not stop researching, talking about, and writing about my experiences in childhood in Project Pegasus, they, quote-unquote, could not guarantee my survival. Now, I don't know if that was a threat to shut up. I took it as such. I think they may have been saying I may have been eliminated by some other faction, and they were just warning me in light of the fact that I had served in the project in childhood and was simply researching what happened to me with a, with a view to writing a book about, you know, a memoir about my experiences in the project. So, in fact, as a whistleblower, as, you know, as a, a, a lawyer educated at UCLA in Cambridge, somebody who had a background as, 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 as an investigative journalist, uh, I was actively investigating and had been for a number of years at that point my experiences in Project Pegasus, and it was a, as a result of that meeting that I was told basically to knock it off. Um, so I, I basically told them that I would and then continued my investigation because I believe that I have a right to tell what I experienced in the project, and I think this information now needs to come out to advantage humanity. So I decided at that point to move forward secretly and continue my investigation, even if it cost me my life. And I have had incidents of apparent infiltration of my activities and disruption of them. So this hasn't been an easy road. Now, recently, I had, a, I had an uh, event happen as an attorney where a client approached me for legal representation, and it was in that context in which that person was used to pass a message along to me from the NSA, or, at, well, the intelligence community, this person was attached to NSA, that they were going to, quote-unquote, let me go forward and tell what I know. So at this point, my understanding is that 
the government was becoming concerned about my investigation back around 2003 and 2004. But in the last five years, after I began speaking publicly and I've been telling the true history of what happened, rather than using the account for ideological purposes not related to the history of what happened, that apparently there's been a decision inside the intelligence community to let me go forward unimpeded now as a whistleblower. Um, so it's not a simple formulation of just being allowed to talk about it. I, I, in fact, was admonished to maintain project secrecy by the Bush White House back in 2003. This is just a, it's, it is such an incredible story, and you speak with such eloquence that it, it, it sounds as the best science fiction book anybody could read, but let's go back to Hollywood for one second. They mixed science fiction with reality and make us believe that it's all science fiction. But why don't we go back, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in 1971, your father showed you the paper you wrote in 2008. Let me repeat that again so that our listeners can understand. In 1971, Andrew Bashago's father showed him the paper he would write in 2008, The Discovery of Life on Mars. It was accessed via time travel. Sometime after you wrote in 2008, the first paper to prove that Mars is inhabited an inhabited planet. Please explain. Well, actually, yeah. There, there were several data points in my, my, child, my childhood in which I was apprised of, of these future developments because the intelligence community viewed them as critical to occur. And so because they were in possession of information about future events, they were acting in real time to increase the likelihood that certain future events that they wanted to see occur would occur. But they had decided in the project not to play God and, and stop events. Because, for example, one of the paradoxes of that is that if you stop a big event, you alter the future after that event and you diminish the quality of the intelligence database that you're gathering via these quantum access methods. Okay, So there were actually a number of of, of incidents in early childhood in which my father showed me the future Mars material. And it wasn't material they had prepared. It was material that included pictures that would later be gathered on Mars in the 2010s. So, so it couldn't have been fabricated by the government. So let me just describe what those were. But first let me describe my father. My father was at this time employed as an engineer for Parsons Jordan, which was a subsidiary of the Ralph M. Parsons Company, which is one of the world's leading process engineering companies, now known as Parsons Corporation. And they had a single contract, Parsons Jordan did. It was a copper contract for Anaconda in Chile. And my research has showed that that, in fact, was being used as a cover for Project Pegasus. In fact, Ralph Parsons would buy Adnan Khashoggi's uh, yacht, the largest private yacht in the world at that time in 1972, and name it Pegasus II for the very project that made Ralph Parsons so famously wealthy, which was this interesting. Which yeah, which was that's right on the Parsons website. I, I, I found that that anecdote about his yacht, and and that um, that undoubtedly resulted from having achieved time travel for the Defense Department. So let me go back and and describe um, my my dad and, and and some of these incidents in childhood where it was clear but they were already in possession of my paper about Mars that I would publish in 2008. He had worked um, on a number of sensitive aerospace projects. For example, he designed the alloy that the ramjet engine would be built uh, out of so that it wouldn't melt at, at high velocities in our atmosphere and, and near-Earth environment. Okay, So he had been on the ramjet project at Curtis Wright. He had worked on the B-70, which was going to be the nuclear-equipped uh, you know, power uh, 
source a, a quip strategic bomber. And as his 1964 resume reveals, he had done a number of technical papers for the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Air Force, and other agencies, presumably intelligence agencies. My investigation revealed that he's in the Central Intelligence Database as a CIA employee. But I think that's not so much as a result of being uh, a CIA officer per se, but more a technical consultant regarding teleportation and other advanced engineering applications for the Defense Department. So in 1967-68, he came home from work at Parsons Jordan in New York City to our home in Morris Plains, New Jersey, where I was growing up and having a you know wonderful childhood with a wonderful family and four great brothers and sisters who were older than I. And he was, on that particular evening, he had been drinking. My dad was by no means an alcoholic. This was one of only several times in his entire life when I saw him inebriated. And he gathered us around. He called all of the children, all five of us, into the living room. And he said, children, I want to read something to you that this guy has written about the supposed discovery for the first time of life on Mars. And he was reading the most farcical and fanciful parts of my 2008 paper, the parts that I had intentionally placed in my paper so that my paper, for example, would be accessible by school children. These were sort of the Harry Potter elements of my paper. But he was finding great delight in the characterizations in those passages. And he was laughing quite hysterically. And we were laughing. And as this, this humorous episode came to a conclusion, I was wondering what he was reading. And something was triggered in my mind. I better go find out what Dad's reading. So I did something I never did before or since, certainly never relative to my, my parents, I ran across the living room and I grabbed the file that it was reading from out of his hands. It was a manila file in such of which three or four uh, pages had been stapled at the top. And it said Central Intelligence Agency Memorandum. And I was only able to read the first line, the headline, you know, the header on the memorandum. It said Andrew Boshago, The Discovery of Life on Mars 2008. And I, so I snatched that on my dad's hand and, and read it, and then he snatched it back and, and briefly lectured me about the fact that that was not courteous to have done. And then this, the humor of, of the episode abated, and we, 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 broke, you know, we broke off. So that was the first incident. I was six going on seven during that episode, and this was around the time that I had first teleported with my dad. It was, it was in 1967-68, that he took me up to Building 68 at the old Curtis Wright Aeronautical Company facility, where, in fact, almost 20 years previously he had worked on the ramjet engine. And there on the shop floor were two parentheses-shaped objects. They were about eight feet tall and, and, and elliptical. And he had the technician turn on the device, and the device propagated an energy field that looked sort of like water falling on a public sculpture, you know, a water sculpture in a, in a city park. Mm-hmm. And when you went up close to the energy field, it looked like a raster on a TV set, except there were these little blue and green squiggles going across the surface of the raster about, at about three-inch intervals across this field of energy. And my dad explained how we were going to hold hands, and when he said jump, you know, on, on, on the count of three, we were going to jump through the energy field, and we would find ourselves in a kind of a tunnel of light. And then after a few seconds, we would pop out and find ourselves on this hillside, somewhere west of New Jersey. He didn't, even, he didn't tell me where it was. So we did that, and we were in the tunnel for a couple seconds, 
and then we popped back into view in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It was from that time in 1967-68, through my whole experience in Project Pegasus, beginning officially as a third grader in the fall of 1969 until the spring-summer of 1972, that we were using that portal there, that teleporter at Curtis Wright, to reach the Santa Fe State Capitol Complex, which was being used as a collection area by teleportees who during those years were, were, were jumping to Santa Fe from different teleports located around the eastern and central United States. And so on that first jump, we, my dad got a car there at one of the state office buildings. We drove up to the Los Alamos National Labs, and we met with Dr. Harold M. Agnew when he was the director of the W Division, the weapons division at the labs. That's the true history of time travel development in the United States that was weaponized. Because what happened is after Nikola Tesla died in 1943, as we find in Margaret Cheney's conventional biography of Nikola Tesla, there were two War Department agents and two FBI agents who were racing to Tesla's apartment in Manhattan to seize his paperwork. The two War Department agents got there first. And I have... I pieced together the evidence in my 10-year investigation of this, Nikola Tesla's papers were never lost, as the New Age lore suggests. In fact, they were sent to the most logical place in the world for them to be sent. They were sent Los to, Alamos. They were sent to Los Alamos because that's where the brightest, you know, most brilliant physicists in the world were then gathering to design the atomic bomb under the Manhattan Project. And right. from that point forward, that time travel, whatever you want to call it, quantum access, time travel teleportation, levitated teleportation, that Nikola Tesla's 21st century technologies, including teleportation, that were in his papers. He had designed, he, he had drawn um, uh, schematics of the devices and there were mathematical formulae about how they worked and there were the electrical amplitudes and so forth that would cause them to work. That paperwork was forwarded to Los Alamos and it has been there ever since. So when we met with... Uh, Dr. Agnew in 1967-68, Tesla's papers had already been there for a quarter of a century, for 25 years. And my dad had, had taken me to that meeting because he was presenting a prospectus to Agnew to involve civilians, including children, in the testing of Tesla teleportation because my dad believed that it could be truly a paradigm-shifting technology, and he supported the adoption of teleportation in civilian transport globally. I mean, imagine a world in which you would go to Grand Central Teleport in New York City and jump through a Tesla energetic array and find yourself in a vortal tunnel for several seconds and then pop into view in a receiving area, just like a, an airport lounge at, at Union Teleport in Los Angeles. That no wonder... No wonder Tesla was subverted all the time. And by the way, just to put things in perspective, where did the teleportation technology come from? Are you saying that it was a Tesla creation? I know to a personal certainty, to a legal, to an historical, to a scientific certainty, based on everything I was told, everything that I overheard, and everything that I was asked to study when I was a child participant in Project Pegasus, that the, the overwhelming debt that the project owed was to Nikola Tesla. I mean, they had an intelligence funnel in which they were putting everything in it. Tesla's work, Enrico Fermi's work with Ernetti and Gemelli, things they were reverse engineering from downed extraterrestrial craft, things the Soviet researchers were doing. But I'm certain that, that most of what Project Pegasus was developing 
were derived from the works of Nikola Tesla. Tesla's significance is even larger than, we be- than we've already entertained that it is. Oh, sure. His work is going to form the basis of the civilian infrastructure of human existence in the 21st century. Um, so uh, we meet with Agnew, it's not, and, and we know it was 1967-68, because as he was reading this prospectus my dad had prepared and questioning the budget and so forth, just, you know, shop talk, he looked up and he looked over at me and he said, how old, in reference to my age? And my dad and I both said simultaneously, six. And since I was born in September of 61, that means that that meeting with Dr. Harold M. Agnew uh, at the W division of the Los Alamos National Labs, after my dad and I had teleported there from Woodridge to you know to Santa Fe, had to have taken place between September of 1967 and September of 1968. And there was a funny uh, one-off kind of colloquy between my dad and Dr. Agnew. Dr. Agnew asked my dad, "Did you did you take the teleport?" And my dad said, "Yes." And so did my young son Andrew. My dad kind of looked over at me fondly. I think to try to communicate to Agnew that if teleportation was safe for his son, it was safe for anybody's child. And, and then my dad said to Agnew, have you tried it yet? And Agnew said, no, but I want to. And I think we can infer from that that teleportation as a practical application had just been reduced to practice by the Defense Department, and so it was sort of a new toy in their world. You know, it was something that Agnew hadn't even tried yet personally. I mean, at least that's the implication that I derive from, from that from that uh, dialogue between Agno and my dad. So that's essentially the beginning of my story of my experiences in Project Pegasus. I jumped right into it. My dad said, come on, Andy, we're going up to Curtis Wright. And I, you know, I said, why? And he said, oh, there's something that I want to show you up there. Well, we actually ended up teleporting to New Mexico. Uh, so I, I believe that we can reliably date the emergence of, of teleportation, its reduction to practice from the papers that Tesla left in 1943 to that very tumultuous 1967-68 time frame. I mean, a, a, a year of unprecedented tumult in American history. Okay, so it was around that time back at our home in New Jersey where he had this file that had summarized elements of my 2008 paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars. In fact, parts of the paper that would sort of make the, the writer of the paper uh, sort of diminished in the eyes of somebody who knew the true story. I think that somebody in the intel community had prepared that as a briefing document for my dad to actually mislead him about the significance of my later discovery of life on Mars. Okay, now the second incident occurred about a year later. My dad was still giving us crew cuts with a home barber kit, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he, he had built a third extension, a third floor to our house, and a, there was a study on the left when you got up to the third uh, step, you know, the landing and going up, up the third set of steps in the house, actually the second steps up to the third level of the house. And over on the left there, he was giving me a haircut. You know, I had the apron on. I was sitting on one of our kitchen chairs, and he was giving me the haircut. And he went over to where he had placed some things, and he got a manila envelope that had a broken red wax seal and one of those tie strings on it. Mm-hmm. He walked over to where I was sitting in the chair getting, you know, as he was giving me the haircut, and he pulled out an image from my 2008 paper that, in fact, embodies the critical discovery of life on Mars that I describe in the 41 pages of that, of that paper left from last year. What it is is an indelible, unmistakable image of a humanoid being, very much like the greys in the UFO contact literature that I discovered on Silkovsky Ridge, which is a ridge that NASA says is about 100 feet that is in the middle left range of the field division in NASA photograph PIA 10214, 
which is the NASA photograph taken by the rover Spirit in November of 2007, that is a westward view of the West Valley of the Columbia Basin of the Gusev Crater of Mars that was taken uh, from the western, western edge of the home plate plateau and details, uh, of, you know, which was then first posted on, on the Internet in January of 2008 and, and details of which I analyze in my paper. And so my dad pulled, pulled this one sheet of paper out of the envelope and it was literally the photograph of that humanoid that I would include in my paper. And the discussion went something like this. He said, do you see this? And I said, yes. And he said, do you know what it is? And I go, no, it looks like some kind of man. And he goes, it's a Martian. And I said, really? It's a Martian? He goes, yep, it's a Martian on Mars. And I said, really? God, that's neat. And, and he said, you know, you, know, you, you know who discovers it? And I said, no. He goes, you do. And I that's go, incredible. And I go, I, I do? And he goes, yeah, you discover it. And I go, when? And he goes, sometime in the future, but I can't tell you. Okay, so this means that they had, <laughs> they had the, the critical image from my 2008 paper. This is in the 1968-69 time frame. I'm seven going on eight years old. My dad is 45, 46-year-old um, projects engineer for the Ralph M. Parsons company with a reporting relationship on technical matters to the CIA, DARPA, the Navy, the Air Force. Okay, so this reveals, again, that they were in possession of quantum access by this 1966-67, uh, 67-68 time frame when teleportation emerged. Okay, the third incident occurred in 1970. On a Saturday morning at our home in Morris Plains, my dad said, come on, Andy, we're going over to, you know, come on with me, we're going over to Curtis Wright. And when we got in the car, I obviously didn't talk about these things outside the car. I said, are we, are we jumping to New Mexico? And he said, no, there are some Martians over there, and they want to meet you. And I said, there are? And they want to meet me? He goes, yeah. <laughs> and in the 15-minute drive from Morris Plains to where Curtis Wright was, which was a big sprawling uh, in wartime defense establishment there. There was a huge blacktop with all these numbered buildings. And we were always going to the engineering building there and building 68. And um, so in that 15-minute drive, I was asking my dad all these questions. And what do you mean, a, a Martian? And he finally stopped, or a Martian. He finally stopped the car and he said, son, they're Martians. They're human beings like us, except they're from the planet Mars. And we're going to go meet them. So... You know, barely containing my excitement, we, we walked into one of the hangars there, and there was like a stage-like area, that we a con big concrete loading dock area that we actually walked onto as we walked into the hangar. And then halfway out in the hangar, there was even a larger area, you know, that was maybe eight feet below that. And there was this metallic ship. It was not a, a, a saucer-shaped object. It was more oh, like a futuristic car shape. It was this teardrop-shaped metal sh ship about the size of, let's say, oh, I don't know, like a Honda Rally RX-7. You know, it was sort of like larger than, let's say, a compact car. Um, and my dad said, they're, they're over here. So we walked to the left, and there was an office area. We went into one of those briefing rooms, just like you have at NASA before, <clears throat> before astronauts get onto the space shuttle. You have these little rudimentary briefing rooms where you've got, like, a table no, no more no greater than a card table, basically, and you've got metal folding chairs, and people have that can have their you know, their coffee and styrofoam cups or whatever. So it's just a little briefing room like that. And sitting across from some of the project engineers, with, like my dad, you know, with their security badges and their pen holders and their, and their cotton, you know, uh, short sleeve shirts, 
were two men, or excuse me, three men who looked essentially human. They were, I mean, if they had been dressed in uh, Armani suits and were walking down Fifth Avenue in New York City, uh, nobody would recognize them as being peculiar. What ethnicity would they look like on, using conventional wisdom on Earth? Caucasian. Okay. Fact, if, there, if there's a public figure or somebody in entertainment who they look most like, I would say it was the actor Telly Savalas. Huh, were, okay. Were basically, two of them were about six feet tall, the other was about five five. They were basically bald, not particularly handsome, white men. They were, they were the kind of bald men where the baldness reveals a lot of head. <laughs> you know, right. In other words, they didn't, they, they, didn't, they, they didn't look like handsome bald men. They looked like basically somewhat... Like Telly Savalas. Somewhat rugged bald men, to put it politely. Yeah, like the Telly yeah. Savalas, like, like the, slightly like the, um, the, the Dr. Evil character that Mike Myers plays in Austin Powers. Yes, yes. Uh, a little bit, a little bit strange, like the uh, Uncle Fester character that uh, Jackie Coogan played in the Adams Family. Yes, but their baldness accentuated their strangeness, but only slightly. And they were. Wearing, How about their physique? Their physique was basically human, but when they got up, well, they were talking there at the table. But then when they got up to get into their ship, I noticed as they walked toward their ship, they walked down a set of steps in front of the stage to walk up into their ship. And so, and it had been puttering there by the side of the stage. In fact, there was nothing underneath it. It was just puttering there about four feet off the ground. Put, 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 put. Okay, so it's, it's sitting there. And it wasn't some reciprocal engine. I'm sure it was a sophisticated engine, but it was hovering there. Okay. And um, they were wearing uh, tight-fitting, very shiny silver suits that were kind of like neoprene wetsuits. And on the chest, there was a red, kind of a blood-red uh, crest. And on that five-sided crest, sort of like Superman would have in it, and in that, the center middle of that crest, going from the top down to the center of the crest, was a yellow lightning bolt. So this was sort of like the, the astronaut. Captain evil. Marvel. Huh? Captain Marvel, Shazam. Well, maybe, oh, well, we, actually, that's an interesting sidebar, because we found that some of the comics are being used and have been used for decades to drop classified information into the comics so that that information can be discredited. So exactly. That's, that's what they were wearing. Just just like uh, Stargate Atlantis made their first episode, Project Pegasus, which was the very DARPA project that was working with Stargates. I mean, that's so, right. So we have to destigmatize this issue of this information appearing in movies and TV shows and books and comics because there was an active program of dropping this critical information into forms of media by which one could point to those productions and say, aha, oh, that person just saw that on television or read it in the funny pages. Okay. Right. But yes, that's what they were wearing. I'm, I'm certain of that. But in answer to your question about their physiques, as they walked past me and down towards to get into their ship, their musculature was a little bit different. In other words, the allocation of their muscles on their bones was a little bit more oblique and strange than the human. As, as you would find in hominids or you know, even human beings who had evolved for many generations and been isolated in their gene pool on another planet. So they were definitely Homo sapiens sapiens, but with some differentiation of their musculature, the way their faces looked, the size and shape of their heads. But as I said, they would have passed as ordinary humans if they had been clothed as such, you know, walking down the, the street in New York City some, some afternoon. Um, and uh, they, they got in the ship. Actually, one of them, as they were walking past me, one of them stopped in, in, in perfect English, 
but in a very high-pitched voice, said, Ray, it was a pleasure visiting your beautiful planet again, and, and a great to see you again, and thank you for introducing us to your young son, Andy. Uh, I hope that we can see you again during our next trip here. And my dad just exchanged diplomatic pleasantries, essentially. He said, well, it was great to see you all again, and thank you for coming. It was a very productive meeting. So these were Martian astronauts who were basically meeting with Curtis Wright personnel, right? They're Curtis Wright. The very this is verbal? He was speaking, no, it was not telepathic. He was speaking with his vocal cords. In English? In perfect English. In fact, in American English. But very huh. high, like we would speak after breathing helium. And, oh, and I see. They got in their ship, and they, the ship slowly puttered out of the hangar, and then it started to do a big loop on the tarmac there at Curtis Wright. And one of the aerospace engineers that was there, who was standing next to me, said, now watch this, Andy. And as they came around and did this big loop and then got on the straightaway again, that ship, Mel, I'm telling you, it, it went from like 40 miles per hour to 4,000 and then probably to eight or 12,000 in, in a second and a half. I mean, it just went zip, zip, zip and took off. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. In fact, it, it, it accelerated so quickly from the you know, 20, 30, 40 miles per hour that it was circling around the airfield and then took off that it actually created a blur in my eyes. I, didn't, I couldn't see the ship. I saw like a flash of silver, and then it just took off at a, at a 45-degree angle in, into the sky. And it was a phenomenal uh, performance, far beyond. But it makes, you, it makes you wonder why, if there's teleportation technology, why would they need a ship to go from point A to point B then? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I think there are complications to teleporting off-planet that maybe hadn't been developed then. I do remember talking about the Martians on the way home. One of the things my dad said is, I can't believe that, they, they, that three guys um, are confined to that small craft for 24 hours. So I still yes. have to do math on that and see how fast they were traveling. But it was not, I, don't, I believe it also that it was not a superluminal craft. It was basically an advanced propulsive craft that was, that achieved, was achieving a high rate of speed, but certainly not, a, you know, not, not going from point A to point B uh, in zero time, but they were traveling through space as we would in a conventional spacecraft. Um, so it was. It did not involve teleportation. But then again, uh, I don't have any evidence that that's not the case. You know, that your point isn't the case. They may have used conventional uh, flight to putter across the airfield and then take off. But just like we now know is on the stealth bombers, they may have turned on their teleportation uh, faculty when they were in the air. But then that right. would be rebutted by my dad's statement that it took them 24 hours to get home. So I think that they did not have a teleportation capability on that ship. It was just a very fast, conventional craft. What else was being discussed that you may remember? I know you were, what, six, seven years old when, well, when was, this happened? It was 1970, so it was very balmy outside. I believe it was the spring or summer. So I would have turned nine that September, so I would have been eight. What I remember is that they knew who I was because my dad had said they want to meet you. Now, maybe our, our personnel, like my father, had passed along to them the fact that I was destined to be, in, as an adult, to be principally associated with human awareness on Earth, that Mars is, in fact, an inhabited planet. And maybe that's yes. why the Martians said, well, you know, let's, let us meet this young, this young boy and, 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 and have the opportunity to do so because of, of the later role that he's going to be playing relative to our, to our civilization on, on, on Mars. Um, a, a number of things that uh, I, I remember my dad saying, well, several of them are, my dad had done high-end math for the eight years uh, that he was at the Thomas A. Edison Research Labs in West Orange. 
I confirmed that through one of his colleagues. He spent most of 1956 to 64, after he left Curtis Wright, solving uh, difficult math problems related to the development of, of electronic uh, and electromagnetic components at the Edison Labs, many of which were later purchased by Robert Noyce of Intel Corporation and became some of the nuts and bolts of, you know, the computer revolution. Those New Jersey defense labs were principally involved in the development of all of that stuff, and much of it went to Intel. Um, so my dad was a brilliant mathematician, and I remember he said that he had been asked to investigate the Martian mathematics, and he went back and told the Defense Department, to our reckoning, it doesn't make sense. And they said, why? And he said, it's based on an ordinal method in which 2 plus 2 equals 5. And I know that sounds absurd, but that's what he said. He said that he could not make rhyme or reason of Martian math because in their notational system, 2 plus 2 ended up equaling 5. Now, an explanation for that would be that the four posts of an underground civilization keep your roof up. <laughs> and if you're living primarily underground after a solar system catastrophe, as the Martians have been from apparently 9500 B.C., uh, when debris elements of the Nova super, supernova explosion came into our, our solar system and, and pummeled Mars, in fact, fractured the planet Mars, it would make sense that a system of mathematics would evolve, a sort of a, uh, a geometric mathematics, in which four posts, you know, keep up your roof, and then they would, they would use the notation five to express two plus two. Uh, but my dad never explained that. He just said, I could not make rhyme or reason of their mathematics because it just simply didn't follow what we presumed were some of the cardinal principles of mathematics in, you know, in the universe. Another thing he said is that they took the Martians on outings in the woods around Curtis Wright, and there was one episode where they found a small clump of leaves that were cohering after a, a, like a spring shower. And, and the Martians, in, the two or three Martians that were on that outing, encircled this little piece of natural evidence, you know, a natural history, and they were engrossed for about a half hour talking about the implications of the leaves that were in this cluster of leaves. And from that, I, I gather that, that life on Mars is such a desperate fight for survival that the, that the humanoid civilization there is very attuned to what natural evidence, you know, what basic biological evidence from the environment tells them. But my dad said that, you know, we couldn't break them away from this clump of leaves on the ground. They were standing around talking about the different leaves, what the structures meant, why these particular species of trees would be found in the same forest, why, um, you know, I, I believe that they were just guessing on what the Martians were talking about, because I'm not sure that that conversation was going on in English, but he said they were basically studying that clump of leaves like scientists engrossed in something they'd never seen before. So I, I think that's consistent with what we now know about Mars, that like Aboriginal peoples on Earth, they're extremely attuned to the environment and what the the basic evidence that nature produces means about where the weather is going, about where climate is going, and just about, you know, life on, on, on one's planet. So that were a couple of the peculiar things that he mentioned about the Martians. Uh, and also sometimes they would smile at inappropriate times because they were fairly telepathic. So if you had some random thought, some transient joke or something, or other th thought going through your mind when you were interacting with them, my dad said sometimes they were weird to interact with, because they'd look over at you and smile and sort of, you could tell they knew what you were. They knew, yes. Yeah, so, but they, but he described how they were basically nice guys and, you know, they had been working with them. These were, these were the human humanoids on Mars, as distinguished from several other types of hominids 
that coexist with the human population on Mars. Okay, so these were our long-lost relatives on Mars. The fourth incident was when I was in New Mexico on a project basis in Project Pegasus, during one of the times when I had teleported there and I was spending days, weeks, and ultimately months there before teleporting back from a teleport at the Sandia National Labs back to Curtis Wright, I was frequently in the company of an old friend of my father's in Albuquerque named Mary Constance Chavez. She was born in 1928, April of 1928, in Albuquerque, and she spent her whole life there. And during those years, she was employed as the cashier, and she was sometimes waitressing at the La Hacienda and La Placida restaurants in Old Town Albuquerque. And she was a previous love interest of my father, going all the way back to when they had flight tested the ramjet engine uh, for Curtis Wright at White Sands during the 1953-54 time frame. But she had elected to marry her high school boyfriend rather than my dad, and nonetheless, she remained a lifetime um, friend of his. And when I was on the project, clearly they were carrying on extramaritally uh, in an affair. And so Connie was essentially my mother away from home when I was in New Mexico as a child participant in Project Pegasus. And we put together, um, based on my father's statements and my knowledge of what I did on the project, he was in New Mexico in quantum displacement there uh, about eight years. So when he died at, on, at age 66 on paper in 1990, biologically he was actually 74. And even though I just had my 48th birthday back on the 18th of this month, I'm, I really turned about 49 because I spent about a year in quantum displacement in New Mexico. And by that I mean biologically existing while you're in a time loop that's created by, in our case, teleporting from um, New Jersey to New Mexico, usually arriving in real time at the same time. Sometimes, we are, one, one time we arrived a year and a half in the future, but nonetheless, biologically existing in that loop and then teleporting back to the day that you left New Jersey. Okay, so we were still going through our lives and eating and sleeping and aging. And so uh, my dad actually lived to 74 biologically when he died at 66. And I'm actually 49, not 48. But it was during those times when we were with Connie that she, my dad came to the restaurant. He was disturbed about something. He was actually ashen-faced. It was something that I was going to do in the future. Maybe it was my revelation about what Pegasus achieved. You know, this whole whistleblower campaign that I'm on to alert the people of the United States and the world that teleportation was developed 40 years ago, and we may be needing it to address, for example, to abate global warming by replacing air transit with teleportation. Okay, so Connie, in response to my dad's disconcernment, said, um, is this around the time that he finds all that stuff up on Mars? And my dad scowled at her because all of the revelations to a Project Insider about future data points were supposed to be vetted with the project and and revealed to them after some deliberation in sort of a controlled way, just like my dad revealed parts of the paper to me. Uh, and my, so he scouted her like, you know, you're not supposed to be saying things like that in front of Andy. You're not supposed to be just on an ad hoc basis revealing elements of his future to him or discussing them. But anyway, so Connie made reference to it there, and I believe that was the summer of 1971, time frame that I spent in New Mexico on the project. We first began teleporting there as a group of children in the summer of 70, and the first long summer I spent in the company of my dad and Connie and the project people was the summer of 71, and I believe it was that summer when she made that that comment, and my dad, you know, scowled at her and uh, admonished her not, not, not to reveal things in, in such a haphazard way. Okay. 
Now, is, it be, is it because he kept her in the loop somewhat? Well, I mean, Connie was basically his girlfriend by then, and she was right, a important right. person to Project Pegasus. Like when somebody would teleport into New Mexico, they were actually keeping the project files behind the, the counter, literally where her cash register was in the La <laughs> in Old Town Albuquerque. You know, New Mexico, Interesting. New Mexico is one big military reservation, and a lot of yes. seemingly innocent uh you know, uh, ice cream parlors and Mexican restaurants and stuff in New Mexico are actually sort of Potemkin villages that are masking either underground locations there or defense bases of one kind or the other, or they're just being used for intelligence community operations. So there you had a situation where when my dad was sharing lunch with, let's say, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the defense attache to the project, or Dr. Agnew, or maybe one of the Manhattan Project physicists. I mean, I remember we had a couple uh, lunches with Dr. Ivan Browning when he was the director of science and technology for CIA. Um, they indeed were actually hiding the project files, at least the, the, the uh, forms that were recording when somebody was teleporting in and when they were teleporting out, literally underneath the cash register at the La Hacienda restaurant there uh, in Old Town, you know, on, the, on the plaza there in Old Town. So... Um, so those, that, 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 uh, that is what was revealed to me leading up to really the epical uh, revelation of my paper. Now, let me describe that. You made reference to it, but let me kind of flesh that out. I was recovering from a severe case of bronchitis in the fall of 1971. I was recuperating in the, um, the guest bedroom of our house in, in Mars Plains. And I could hear that down in the living room, uh, some of my relatives were visiting. There was a lot of uh, a lot of, uh, you know, fun going on there. I could hear everybody laughing and everything. And my dad, you know, used that opportunity of everybody having a good time down in the living room to sneak up to my sick room and close the door. And he, again, he had one of these envelopes with the broken red seal and the tie string. And he said, uh, Andrew, I'm going to be showing you something very significant. And I said, what is it? And he said, it's going to be something that you're going to write in the future. And I said, Really? And he goes, yeah, it's one of the things that we've recovered from the future, and we've decided to have you not just see it, but the purpose of this exercise is for you to read this, this writing and, try to, and, and study the photographs and read the captions and try to remember as much of them as you can. So he came over to the bed, and he showed me the paper, and it was my 2008 paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars, in the very type font as it is now available on the Internet at, at www.exopolitics.com. It was my 2008 paper in, you know, 12-point Arial, you know, modern type font. In fact, he said, I looked down at the copyright declaration on the first page, and it said Andrew D. Bashago. And I was being raised as a Roman Catholic, and I had not yet selected a confirmation name. So at that time in my, in my life's history, I didn't have a middle name yet much less a middle initial. And I said, oh, that's, that's strange, Dad. I, I have a D in my name. And he said, oh, yeah, that must be related to your confirmation name. But he didn't reveal to me that it was Daniel, which is what I would select uh, a few years later when I was confirmed as a Roman Catholic. Right. And, and so he said, look, when, look, look, uh, look at the year that it's published, or when you write it. Okay? And I said, 2008. And he goes, yeah, how old are you going to be then? And being one of the whiz kids in Project Pegasus, I quickly answered, 47. And he said, right, you're going to be 47. And this is going to be a very important paper because it's going to be the first paper to prove that Mars is an inhabited planet. So we want you to read it and, and study it. I'll leave and you can take as many hours as you need. Just call for me when you're done reading it and studying it 
and try to put that up as much of it in your mind as you can. Now, Mel, there's no way that this could have been a paper written by them. For, for one thing, this was 40 years ago. Well, it was 37 years before I wrote the paper. For another thing, the, the, the images in the paper were the ones recovered by the rover Spirit in 2007. Right. So they, they could not have manufactured this paper and used brainwashing to have me remember it and write it, write all 41 single-spaced uh, pages of it 37 years in the future. That just goes beyond what they were doing then. And besides, But Andy, yeah. could it be said that they had technology on Mars taking pictures back then that we didn't know about? Well, I guess it's possible, but if, if you look at the 1970 time frame, the Martians were leaving Curtis Wright in a conventional ship my dad said, it, I can't believe it takes them 24 hours to get there. It sounded like not something, something that none of our air personnel wanted to do. I mean, some Mars anomalists have claimed that we did have a presence on Mars at that time. But the problem is that the discrete pictures that were taken were the ones taken by the rover Spirit. And they were taken as digital photographs. So again, the historicity of the paper as it was published, you know, I, I wrote it. So I, you know, I know to a personal certainty that... I wrote the paper. In fact, I, I, I got about three hours of sleep for a month writing the paper in 2008. And I spent all of 2008 from the time that that little lady in the blue dress was found over at the far left edge of the plateau there in January of 2008. I spent all of the small hours that I could steal away from my law practice studying that photograph. I put about a thousand hours into it. And then I summed up what I had found in December of 08. So I know I wrote the paper. It was a major effort. I tried to write it so that it would be a the landmark paper showing the natural history as we can understand it of Mars, you know, from that photograph. So I know that it wasn't passed along to me. And besides, the only time I got to look at it was that brief reading. So how can you manufacture something you've read 37 years previously? It's just, I don't believe it's possible. Okay, so I know I wrote the paper, and I know, I know what I did in Project Pegasus, and I'm going to be able to explain the hidden history, the whole insider account that I have of Project Pegasus and what this DARPA project under Donald Rumsfeld achieved in the early 70s in the area of quantum access. So I'm also going to be able to provide the history that explains how the paper physically could have been in, in the possession of the U.S. Defense Department 37 years before it was published on the Internet. Um, so these facts are difficult facts. They're, they're far-fetched, but they're true. So I'm just trying to bring them together in a kind of a synthesis that shows that this is what they decided to do when they had quantum access to my paper. Because they had brought it back in time, they thought, well, why don't we do kind of a quantum enfoldment in which, because Andy's going to write this and it's going to be revelatory about Mars, let's have him read it in advance. Maybe they were studying whether um, it would end up being the same paper. In other words, maybe I was being dropped into a, a quantum paradox study where they were keeping uh, that paper and then seeing... If, if it, when it emerged in real time, whether the one they had accessed from the future was the same text, that may have been something I don't know. Can uh, you repeat that? You're, got, you're kind of cutting off all of a sudden. Right. One of my law clients called in on my phone here, uh, so I apologize. Okay. What I'm saying is, I know they showed me the, my paper from the future 37 years in advance because they had accessed it from the future via, undoubtedly, teleportation, sending somebody to the future and bringing it back. They were bringing other artifacts like that back because sometimes they were taken out of black leather security pouches when we were, like, for example, sharing lunch with the project people in, in Albuquerque. So they were, they were basically mining the future for data. 
And one of the artifacts from the future they brought back was my paper. Now, what I was saying was it's possible that I was being dropped into not so much a mind control effort to have me rewrite the paper 37 years later, but in fact, a quantum uh, physics study in which they wanted to show me my paper so that when I wrote it in real time in 2008, they could study the text against the text of the copy that they sourced via quantum access and showed me in 1971. In other words, I don't know whether the paper I wrote in 2008 had the same exact text of the paper I was shown, because that version they had accessed from the future. And the, and now, the, could, you com- could you confirm that this was actually you, or could it have been a parallel universe? It was definitely my paper, because my name was on the paper. So it was the discovery of life on Mars. It had the same type formatting, the same photographs. In fact, when I was writing the paper, I was getting these weird kind of kundalini kind of chills, because I recognized what was in the photographs. Like I, I, would, I would use the methodology that I derived to right. find and, 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 and excise and magnify the details that show life on Mars, you know, humanoid beings, animal species, car statues, and, and so forth. But as I would then enlarge that photograph and drop it into my paper as I was writing it, I was getting excited because there was something so deeply familiar about the data that I realized that I was participating in some kind of profound evolutionary process. I was reminded of Albert Einstein's statement about the so-called cosmic religious sense, which is where you have this transcendental spiritual experience when you're doing something creative in science or the arts in which you feel like you're directly participating in the evolution of the universe. Okay, so I was having these moments when I was writing the paper, and yet I think some of that it was also being stimulated not by the fact that it was a significant piece of literature, or science, if you will, but that I had seen these images before because I'd been shown the very paper I was writing. So there was a strange interpolation of that data in the process of creating the paper. But as a matter of scientific certitude, I do not know whether the paper I was shown in 1971 was the identical paper that I wrote in 2008 because the version they had had been accessed in the future and brought back to my present, and I don't know if it was from the same timeline. But it was certainly from at least an adjacent timeline with a very similar set of events in it because it was my 2008 paper. That's what I meant when I said, could it, could, it, could it have been a parallel universe? That's exactly what I meant, what you were could, saying. Could, yes. in, indeed, it could have been a version of the paper in a parallel uh, a timeline or dimension where that paper also got written by me in 2008, but let's say, let's say had slightly different text or pictures. But it was very close because I remember how I designed the first page and it was identical to what I was shown. You know, the, the, the type font, the, the formatting and so forth. It was that paper. Okay, so that was, those were the moments in childhood when, as a result of being essentially a project insider involved in testing and training in quantum access, uh, my later findings related to the fact that Mars is an inhabited planet were shared with me. And I, I'm bringing these up not only to give the backstory to my Mars findings and explain that this was an event that the intelligence community had, was, was aware of and considered significant, but also because it provides an interesting anecdote in which how the defense community insiders of that era were dealing with things they knew about the future. In the shop talk when I was on Project Pegasus, they clearly had a sense that, a consensus, I would say, that they didn't want to play God and and alter future events, but they clearly wanted to intervene at the margin 
and encourage events that they wanted to see to come to fruition. So in a sense, they were giving me help by, by apprising me of the fact that at some point in adulthood, I would achieve substantial notoriety related to finding life forms on Mars. And they were letting me read the, um, the seminal paper related to that. And it was the paper, and it took a long time to read. Now, I had been reading very dense text by then, because when we were being educated on Project Pegasus, we were, we were engaged in uh, photo reading on these devices called tachistoscopes that had been developed by the Office of Naval Research. And we were being schooled uh, three days a week in the third, fourth, and fifth grade in a course of study called Galileo that essentially covered the history of the development of science and of society from the year 1450 to the present with the addition to it of classified information. So while we might have a chapter on the works of Thomas A. Edison, as any other school child would of that era, we were also reading uh, classified information about Nikola Tesla, about extraterrestrials, uh, and other classified defense-related matters. So um, I, I was able to read this dense paper that I would write in 2008 because I was doing that three days a week in, when I was in, certainly when I was in New Jersey uh, on the pro, you know, during the project years and was quite familiar with trying to, trying to grok you know, difficult um, adult-level you know, science writing. Uh, I don't remember reading my paper on 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 the uh, on the tachistoscopes, but I certainly remember reading about the derivation of the two principal quantum access technologies that had been evolved by 1967-68. So let me let me chart chart those. The first was 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 the teleporter, which was the Tesla device that they derived from from his papers and set up at Curtis Wright, and basically creates a vortal tunnel in time space and allows you to go from one point to another in the time-space continuum almost instantaneously. The second major area of technical development that was being undertaken by uh, Project Pegasus were devices called chronovisors. Are you familiar with those, Mel? Yes. I think I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure that you've seen uh, some, some writing about them. I'm, I'm not the first to report about them. Basically, well, why don't you tell the audience, yes. Yeah, well, the, well basically, the chronovisor is a device that propagates a hologram, basically a dense field of light that is so dense that it has among its properties the ability to have a lensing effect where an event that is going on somewhere in the quantum hologram on a non-local basis is brought into the laboratory. So that if you're standing in the laboratory when, the, when this hologram is generated and you're standing outside the hologram, you can look into the hologram in this form of sort of cubicle three-dimensional cinema and see a past or future event going on. But if you stand on the stage of the chronovisor when the hologram is tuned in around you, then you experience a form of virtual time travel where you are in that place and you can interact with the people of that time and place. So that was the second major area of technical development that they were experimenting with and they needed children because the bodies and you know, the respiration, the heartbeat, the blood pressure, the movements of adults uh, were so substantial that they would cause the, this rather tenuous hologram to collapse. So, so they needed to work with children. 
Uh, and this, let me just inter- interject for one moment. I apologize for interrupting. This has nothing to do with with what's called the the looking glass that David Wilcock uh, mentions. And by the way, folks, Andrew Basciago is Andrew Basciago. He is a person. He is not David Wilcock. So to those of you who are emailing me, telling me that they're the same person, we're probably going to have them both in one show in the future because they, they have a lot of things in common, but they're each one individually. Please proceed. Right, right. So, so essentially, they brought children into the, this project where they were, they were basically researching and developing defense technologies. The two principal devices, as I mentioned, was the Tesla teleporter and the Ernetti uh, chronovisor. Now, they, there were a number of reasons why they were working with children. This is a common question. I think it's a fair one. The first reason is, just as they began working with us, jumping to Santa Fe and, and, and to, from Albert, you know, from Sandia back to Curtis Wright in summer of 70, the first reason we were brought in to the project was they were testing the, uh, the mental and the physiological responses of children to being teleported because there was always that off chance that there would be children teleporting, for example, if you use this technology to send executive branch officials around the world. I mean, if the president was going to teleport you know, from London to Sydney, his children might be going with him, right? Okay, so we, they were testing the cognitive and the, the physiological effects of teleportation on kids. So in that sense, we were experimentees. Some of us were injured. Some of the, some of the teleportees have died as a result of a metabolic disorder. Fortunately, I, I haven't had that disorder, but I know that at least one of the teleportees, Glenn Pruitt, uh, died as a result of his project injuries in, in adulthood as a result of the medical consequences uh, downstream from from the energy field that the, the teleporter was uh, was propagating. Okay, the second reason we were brought in was, as I just mentioned, with the chronovisors, we were necessities. They needed to use bright, uh, uh, cooperative, uh, amenable, uh, you know, children to be obedient. Trained. Well, more or less observant, um, cooperative, highly intelligent, highly intuitive. To, to go on the probes to the past and future in the chronovisors and tell them with specificity what we had seen and done. Uh, clearly, we were also participant observers in the, in the holograms that the chronovisors were generating because they knew that children are tab- tabula rasa. Children see things that adults miss because they don't have any preconceived notions uh, about what they're looking at. And so clearly, we were participant observers of a high order because they valued the things that bright, psychically active children would report back upon being immersed in some past event. And we usually we were accessing the past uh, from the chronovisors in both New Jersey and New Mexico. And then also we were clearly trainees because they told us that by the time we were young adults, there would be a fully-fledged time-space program to rival the space program. But it would not be under NASA, it would be under DARPA. And we would not be called astronauts, we would be called chrononauts. And we would not serve publicly, we would serve secretly. And it was during a, uh, an evening at a bar in Albuquerque where a conversation was held between my, my late father and Donald Rumsfeld, the defense attache for the project, for Project Pegasus, in which Rummy talked about the fact that we're going to be, quote-unquote, putting the kids through the Naval Academy as a pretext for involving them in later uh, you know, future project activities. So the plan was to have us attend the Naval Academy and use that as a conduit to continue our activity in, in time-space exploration in young adulthood. So those were the four reasons they were working with children. So during those years, I, 
I must have teleported back and forth between Curtis Wright and Sandia maybe, I'm just guessing, but maybe 40 times. And I was sent to multiple past times in the chronovisors. Um, the chronovisor arrays were located in three locations in New Jersey that I've been able to, to remember, which was the General Manufacturing uh, Company facility in Convent Station, New Jersey. Uh, then the chronovisor was, was moved to an historical, you know, revolutionary era building that was undergoing historical renovation in Morristown, New Jersey. And that's where most of our probes to the past took place. And then there was one probe to the future, to the year 2013, that took place on November 5th of 1971 up at the ITT Defense Communications Facility in Nutley, New Jersey. And during that and program, hold it right there, Andy. We have to take our one and only intermission. And this is so fascinating, folks. We're going to find out what happens in 2013. And I also believe I heard you mention that at one time you teleported to the year 2041 or 43? Well, we, we ultimately accessed 2045 to recover data there. But that was sort of the, the, ultimate, the ultimate mission or, or project, uh, project goal that we would ultimately achieve. So... And we'll talk about that on the way back from the intermission. Andy, how do we get in touch with your work? I know you're, you're, there's a PDF file out there that's available at exopolitics.com. Is there anything else on how people can get in touch with your work? Yeah, right now I'm primarily writing about uh, the fact that Mars is an inhabited planet. And I, I think I've already proved uh, to, to a scientific certainty that that's the case. In fact, I'm, I'm calling on President Obama and also our, our scientific community to publicly acknowledge my finding. and. And, and really take credit. You know, this was an American civilization that pioneered space exploration and put those rovers up there to take those photographs. And it was an American lawyer from Washington State who showed the world what was in them. So I'm primarily focusing on my Mars findings right now because they're emergent, and I, I have to announce what I'm finding and write it up. And, and those papers are in two locations on the Internet. They're at uh, www.exopolitics.com which is the website of essentially the Ben Franklin of exopolitics. Uh, my esteemed Alfred friend, Weber. Alfred Weber, one of the leading lights uh, in, in peace and space and uh, in space law and in exopolitics. So I decided to ask uh, Alfred whether I could post my Mars papers there, and he graciously uh, uh, agreed to uh, host my papers there. They're in a feature entitled The Discovery of Life on Mars, Uncovering a NASA Cover-Up, that's at the top of the ExoPolitics homepage. Those papers are also cited under recent news on my Facebook group site, which is also entitled The Discovery of Life on Mars. Uh, they're going to be mirrored on, an, on a, web, a website that's currently under development that's going to be at www.projectmars.net, and I'm going to be putting a companion site to that about Project Pegasus and my experiences in it and what the U.S. government achieved in quantum access over 40 years ago and provide a kind of an insider history of time-space research by the U.S. government at the time of its emergence uh, at a companion website at www.projectpegasus.net. So those two project websites are currently under development, and so my work will be in those four, four locations on the World Wide Web. And we're also going to have a link on our website. Folks, so much to come. On the way back, I'm going to ask uh, Andy to tell me what the reaction was after he released the paper. Also, we keep talking about former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. I want to know if Andy can tell me if uh, Mr. Rumsfeld ever teleported to the future 
and found out what happened to the $2.3 trillion that were lost in 2001. But when we come back, this is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Alfred Weber, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.